So we've come to another transition in our confession, not just between chapters, but also in the overall layout of the confession. As a, just for a brief overview, remember that chapters 1 through 6 we referred to as first principles, and they deal with sort of the, the, the bedrock doctrines of the faith, the, the groundwork for everything that then comes out of it. Chapters 7 through 20 we refer to as uh, the section called the covenant, which is the skeleton around which everything else in the confession is built. Uh, our confession is a distinctly uh, covenantal document or a, a, uh, a document of covenant theology. Uh, covenant theology is central to our confession of faith. And, and that deals specifically with our relationship to the God that we learn about in the uh, the second chapter and how we relate to this God, where we are by nature and how we can be reconciled to God through Christ, what He's done for us. That's all in chapter 7 through 20, the biggest section of our confession. Chapters 21 to 30 we called God-centered living, which dealt with matters like Christian liberty, worship, the civil sphere, marriage and the church. And then within that section that dealt with the church, we walked through most recently Baptist sacramentology and we talked about baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now we're coming to the final two chapters of our Confession of Faith, which have been gathered together under the title, The World to Come. The first of those is chapter 31, which deals more specifically with what happens to men after death, or at death we could say, and then chapter 32 addresses the last or final judgment. It is a product of the fall and evidence of our sinful condition that the generality of mankind does not like to think about the fact that the life that we are living, each one of us, will someday come to an end. The extremely rare exceptions of men like Enoch and Elijah prove the rule that in the heart and mind of God there is a clock counting down to the very second established from the foundation of the world at which your life and my life will cease. We will stop living as we know it. When we're young, we imagine that death is far away. If you talk to your children about death, they might say something like, yeah, but I'm young. Because we, we adopt this mindset almost naturally that death is for old people. It's not true. It's not true. But when we're young, we, we think that way. When we're middle-aged, for some reason, we still think or imagine that death is far away. Death is for old people. I think the irony is that even when we get old, still, very often, we imagine death's a long way off. At least we don't think it's right around the corner. We, we don't, it's not like it's ever real to us. We rarely assume or even consider that death would be just around the corner for us. If we're healthy, well, we don't think about death. Death is for old people. Death is for sick people. Death is for dangerous people. We don't, we don't think that it's, it's for us. When we're sick, well, we just assume I'll take the cure and the cure is at work and the remedy will soon be applied and I'll get better. We just assume that. We come down with a cold, start coughing. Hard to breathe. Well, I'll just take some medicine, get some rest, drink some water. I'll be fine in a few days. We don't think that death is 
is for us. When you go into a hospital for some kind of a procedure, you expect you're going to leave the hospital. You, you don't walk in thinking this is the last time I'll ever grace this door frame. When we lay down to sleep, we expect that we'll wake up in the morning. When we tell our families goodbye, we expect it won't be long and I'll tell them, hey. That's the way we typically think because of the fall. Death is such a pertinent reality to every single human being and yet we act like or pretend like or imagine, live like it's not so. It's not for us. That's for other people. You go to a funeral. Well, well death got that person, but, but everybody else, we're, we're going to make it out, out of here all right. That's the way we think. But in contrast to that, the Bible tells us something completely different. Psalm 90 verse 12 says, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Now why do we have to be taught? Why does this prayer have to be formed this way? Teach us to number our days, except that we don't by nature just immediately begin to number our days. This is something we have to be taught. And it says to do this, the prayer is to do this, that we would get wisdom. In other words, considering the end of life and the shortness of life and the, the looming death gives us wisdom. It teaches us how to measure or to weigh all things in light of death. We might think that you get wisdom or you get intelligence by constantly surveying every corner of the known world, every, every uh, avenue of thought and, and study. And learn, somebody might learn a little bit about the animal world and the plant world and, and ocean life and the sky and sciences. And, and if I can learn a little bit about all of these different areas, then I will, I will have a, a, a breadth of wisdom that I can carry with me through life. But the Bible says, no, stop and just number your days. And if you'll number your days, you'll get wisdom. You'll live like a person ought to live because you'll measure all of those other things in light of death. We learn to weigh every moment in light of our final moment. To measure every earthly thing in light of the moment when they will all be left behind. Every earthly thing. That's how we ought to think. The old writers would say this when it comes to some temporal thing. Treat that thing as you will, or think of that thing as you will on your deathbed. I'll, I'll love my wife on my deathbed, but she will not be ultimate on my deathbed because there's more to come. I'll love my children on my deathbed, but they won't be ultimate on my deathbed. Weigh all things by that final moment. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 7.2, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. In other words, Solomon would say, it's good to go to funerals. You should go to funerals, and you should go to funerals often, and you should take note of what you're seeing. Look at the dead person. Look at everybody that's there as they mourn. And, and take this to heart. Someday... Either you will be there and all people will be mourning for you or everybody that you know will be gathered around you and they'll be mourning over your death. You'll mourn for them or they'll mourn for you. We're all heading to the grave and it does us good to consider that truth often. So these, these final two chapters give us the opportunity to do that and to see a few things that the Bible teaches about death and what follows. And I hope that at least for me in preparation for this, what, this what, what we confess and what the Bible teaches about the, the, the death of the saints is absolutely glorious. 
It, it, it is, it's almost, well, it is, not almost, it is incomprehensible, un, unimaginably wonderful. This first paragraph that we're going to cover deals with two subjects. The, the distinction between the body and the soul at death and the distinction between the righteous and the wicked at death. And so those will be our two main headings. We'll tack a third one on at the end. So number one, a distinction between the body and the soul. And number two, a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Now let me read this paragraph. Paragraph 1 of chapter 31. The bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption. But their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into paradise, where they are with Christ, and behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell, where they remain in torment and utter darkness, reserved to the judgment of the great day. Besides these two places for souls separated from their bodies, the Scripture acknowledgeth none. Number one, a distinction between body and soul. The first thing we see that there is that there is a different end for the body and the soul at death. They do not immediately go to the same place. The Bible teaches that death, we could, if we wanted to nail down what exactly death is, the Bible teaches that death is simply the moment when the soul leaves the body. James 2.26 says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So we learn there the body apart from the spirit is dead. The body is dead in the absence of its spirit. The body is dead, but the spirit is not dead. The body is dead. The spirit, we might say, is the life or the animating power of the body. And so when the spirit leaves, the body dies. The body is dead. And our confession affirms this by distinguishing between these two parts of our nature at death. First, the body. The bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption. When you and I die, when our spirits leave our bodies, our physical bodies will immediately begin to the decomposing process. Our bodies will see corruption. They will rot. And eventually, when all has rotted, our bodies will return to the dust that they're made from. Our confession references Genesis 3.19, which says this is God speaking to Adam. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We see there that death and corruption are a product of the fall. And all mankind, as to our physical bodies, will eventually return to dust. The body that you're in right now, your hair, your skin, your teeth, with all the maintenance and care that you can and do, uh, and could possibly provide for it, will someday be interred into the dirt 
It will die. It will be buried. It will rot. All of our appearance-sustaining products will fail and will rot. And though you have a casket, and some of us might be fortunate enough to be able to afford a concrete burial vault that will last a long, long time, inside that vault and that casket, your body will decompose and turn to dust. We could add to that passages like Acts 13, 36, which says, For David after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. So, in contrast to our Lord Jesus Christ, whose body saw no corruption at death, but who was raised from the dead, here David, the greatest of Israel's king, was buried at death, Israel's kings, was buried at death, and his body, like all of the bodies of all men were, who preceded him in death, rotted away. They could, they could say, David's... Dead. David's body rotted. This is the universal undertaking of men. Genesis 50, verses 25 to 26 says, Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and shall carry up, you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So here we see that Joseph knew that in the allotted time, all that would be left of him was his bones. And yet they embalmed him in the Egyptian method in order to preserve the body. Of course, you know, people nowadays, they dig up uh, mummies. They say, wow, look, it's still preserved. You say, oh, that's really cool. Don't touch it. It'll, it'll fall apart. Don't blow on it. Don't breathe on it. It's corrupted. It's rotted. They embalmed him in the Egyptian method, and yet when they left Egypt, we read in Exodus 13, 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. I think we can imagine that when Joseph died, he weighed probably about as much as the average man, and yet at this point, doubtless, a, a young boy could probably have carried all that remained of Joseph out of Egypt, his bones, because that was all that was left. This one who had been second only to Pharaoh, to whom all Egypt had come for bread, was reduced to bones. Grab his bones and carry them out. He saw corruption. We read in 2 Kings 13, verses 20 and 21 of Elisha. It says, So Elisha died and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Now his predecessor, Elijah, was one of the two rare exceptions. But here we see that Elisha the prophet was also, after death, reduced to bones. He died, his body was buried, he rotted, he saw corruption. We also learn from Scripture that Common sense, human reasoning and experience proves this to be the case. Everybody knows it. John chapter 11 verse 39, Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Now Lazarus was not yet reduced to bones. He had not fully rotted. He was not embalmed like Joseph was in Egypt. 
I think we can assume he still had all of his body parts intact as he had been wrapped and laid in the grave. And yet they knew after only four days, there's going to be an odor. If you take that stone away, we're going to smell something. Why? What would the odor be? It would be the smell of Lazarus' rotting corpse. Because he's dead. He saw corruption. Now we men often find ourselves giving off a bit of an odor. You ladies work harder than we do to ensure that that's never the case. But let's all keep in mind that someday, even though there might be no human nose that can take in the smell, you, you, you know the question, if a tree falls in the woods and nobody hears it, does it make a sound? Yes, it does. Uh, if a body rots in the grave and there's no, nobody there to smell it, does it give off a stench? Yes, it does. That'll be each of us. Maybe no human nose ever smells our decay, but each of us will someday be the source of a pungent aroma that could only be described as a rotting corpse. Like we smell when something's dead in the road. We say, something's dead. That'll be us. We'll rot and see corruption. We will die. Our flesh will slowly begin to rot. Our bodies will return to dust. Now, in distinction from the body, we see next the soul at death. Remember, death is the result of the soul leaving the body. The body dies, but the soul leaves. Where does it go? Our confession says, Their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. So there are three things that are stated here. Number one, the soul does not die or sleep. The soul, though it is a created thing, is not corruptible. It doesn't die. The soul is the animating power of life. Nothing but God gives animation to the soul itself, and therefore the soul cannot lose its animation. It cannot die, nor does it sleep. Even now, when your body is asleep, or when you're sleeping, your soul is keeping your body alive. It's giving that animating life. You know this because sometimes you wake up and you say, I had the weirdest dream last night. Because your mind was working, and you wake up the next day. Our soul or our spirit is always active, still always living. The soul does not die or sleep. Number two, the soul has an immortal subsistence. Subsistence is a big word that means being. The soul or spirit has an immortal, that means a never dying being or existence. And thirdly, the soul immediately returns to God. Ecclesiastes 12.7 says, The Spirit returns to God who gave it. All human beings are by nature body and soul entities. The body is not the soul. The soul is not the body. They are distinct. And this is clearly shown at death when the soul or the spirit leaves the body. The body dies. The body decays. The body sees corruption. The body rots. The body returns to dust. The soul leaves and returns to God who gave it. Even before the first instant of decay or corruption, the soul has already returned to its maker. When we say, he is dead, or she's dead, or when a doctor or a paramedic pronounces a time of death when the, the, the final heartbeat has taken place, 
even at that very moment when we recognize, when we comprehend the person is dead, at that moment the soul has already made its way back to God who gave it. The soul has already left. And this will happen to us all. Our soul will leave our body and our bodies will die. So that's the distinction between the body and the soul at death. Now secondly, we have a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. The distinction between the righteous at death and the wicked at death. Just as the soul and body take a different course at death, so do the souls of the righteous and the wicked. The bodies of all men die and decay and return to dust. The souls of all men return to God who gave them. But it's at that point where the souls of the righteous and the souls of the wicked diverge. They go different ways. First, the souls of the righteous. The souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into paradise, where they are with Christ, and behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies." Now here we have five truths. First, the souls of the righteous are made perfect in holiness at death. In an instant. Perfect in holiness. That is, everything in us that is contrary to the fullness of the work of God with regard to sin and sanctification, every struggle, every incongruity, every inequality that exists in us between what God would have us to be in relation to His own holiness and what we are in our flesh, all of that will be in an instant taken away and we will be perfect in holiness in an instant. The souls that are now present in this intermediate state are described in Hebrews 12, 23 as the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Made perfect. Now, they're not perfect. Our souls are not perfect now. But then, they will be. With the last breath of life, they are imperfect. With the first glimpse of God, they're perfect. Our hearts will beat one last time with sin. And our hearts will soar in the next instant free from sin. Perfect in holiness. Second thing we see is the souls of the righteous are received into paradise at death. The the biblical word for paradise in in the Old Testament is the word for a garden. the, The Garden of Eden. We could also say the paradise of Eden. In Luke 23, 43, Jesus said to the The thief on the cross, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That day, the thief was in paradise. We could say the garden of God if we wanted to in a a sense. As Christ's body lay in His tomb. And we don't know what they did with the body of this thief. Probably didn't treat it very well. As, As Christ's body laid in the tomb, the thief was with Him in paradise. All the souls of the righteous, that is God's people, at the instant of death, are received or welcomed with gladness into the garden paradise of God, which we call heaven. The righteous are received into paradise. Number three, the souls of the righteous are with Christ at death. 2 Corinthians 5.8, Paul says, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. We away from the body. I, 
There will be an I, there will be a you away from the body. Paul says we would rather be away from the body. Where will you be? We'll be with the Lord. We'll be with Christ. He expresses this desire in Philippians 1 when he says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Paul spoke of death as if he might just leave this group of people and, and go be with somebody else. I just I want to go be with him. That's because he knew that the souls of the righteous at death go to be with Christ. To be away from the body in soul is to be at home with the Lord Jesus Christ. To depart this life is to be with Christ. To leave our earthly acquaintances is to arrive in the presence of Christ. In an instant, to be with Him. Just as this very evening, many of us will leave this room and walk downstairs and see the faces of others who went downstairs before us, so also when we breathe our last breath in this life and close our eyes, and perhaps some of us will have the privilege of saying goodbye to our loved ones. Many of us will not, but some of us might. We'll say goodbye to our loved ones. It will be simply as if we had blinked and opened our eyes and we will see Jesus Christ, our Lord, and we'll hear Him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Master. We'll hear His voice. Even as we hear voices now, we'll see His face. Even as we see faces now, though not with physical eyes yet, spiritual sight, which is not a lesser sight. It's the greater sight. We'll be with Christ in an instant. Number four, the souls of the righteous behold the face of God in light and glory. As David said in Psalm 27, 4, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. At death, the souls of the righteous enter into this sight. We gaze, we will gaze upon the beauty of the Lord in His heavenly temple. We will behold God in light, in the fullness of His being and perfections. No darkness at all, no hiding at all. All the glory of His majesty shining forth in unfettered, ineffable light will be made known to us in as much as we as created creatures are able to take in. He will reveal and we'll see Him. We will behold the face of God. Not with eyeballs. Why? Because they're going to be rotting. We'll behold the glory of God with the eye of the soul. The same way that we view now with spiritual sight through faith, we will view in that moment with spiritual sight, but faith won't be required. We will not behold God through the lens of creation. We won't look at trees and clouds and mountains and say, wow, what a mighty God He must be. We will not behold or contemplate God through the lens of scriptural revelation. We won't be reading the Bible and saying, wow, what a mighty God He must be. We won't need a Bible or an angel or an apostle or a prophet to tell us one single thing about God. We will look and see Him in all of the fullness of His glory that happens at death. We see Him. And then number five, the souls of the righteous await the redemption of their bodies. Now this is an important truth. We're not glorified at death. Death 
for the Christian is not the final state. That's why we refer to it as the intermediate state. It's a state in between. What is lacking is the redemption of our physical bodies. Why? Because they're still going to be on the earth decaying, seeing corruption. In Romans chapter 8, Paul's speaking of the final end of history and what, what Christ calls the regeneration. Paul, or Paul says in Romans 8, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Even now, we feel this urge, this groaning for the redemption of our bodies. If we, if we have an ache or a pain or a sickness, we don't like it. We say, this, this is not how it should be. We wake up sleepy. We don't like it. We think this is not how it should be. I want to I continue sleeping. If we're sleepy, but we're awake, we say this is not how it should be. I'm sleepy. I want to be sleeping. When we're sleeping, it's time to get up. We want to be sleeping. We, we recognize this, this incongruity. The things of my physical body, it, it, it's, it's, it's pushing me to expect, to long for, to desire something else. We're waiting for the redemption of our bodies. Our outer self is wasting away. Our eyes grow dim. Our joints ache. Our skin grows thin. We're waiting for the day when our bodies will be glorified. This glorification of the body does not take place until Christ returns at the final day and our bodies are raised up from the grave. And so, until that day, even in the intermediate state, our souls will be patiently waiting for the days when our bodies are glorified in such a way as to house our perfect spirits. And then we will live forever in reunited, as, as reunited body, soul entities, glorified in soul and body completely. So in the intermediate state, we will be waiting for the redemption of our bodies. 1 John 3, 2 and 3 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Again, speaking of that final day, this is our great hope. And until then, even in the intermediate state, we will live in what we might call holy anticipation of the day. Now some of you, I know, know someone who is who was a Christian who has died. Right now, if, if any Christians who have died, right now, you can think of them, right now, their soul has been made perfect in holiness. They don't struggle with sin. They don't struggle with unbelief. They don't str struggle with spiritual tension. They don't struggle with sluggishness or laziness of spirit. They don't even struggle with the fact that they don't get to see you anymore. Their souls have been made perfect in holiness. They've been received into God's glorious heavenly paradise. They are right this moment with Jesus Christ. They are beholding the face of God in light and glory. And yes, they are eagerly awaiting the redemption 
of their bodies. This is why the Bible says we don't grieve like people who have no hope. We do grieve. We grieve. The souls of the departed righteous, they're not grieving. If, if you were to give them the option, would, would you come back and be with us? They would say, don't speak of it. Don't even mention it. I don't want to be back. I've been set free. I'm beholding the face of God. You want me to come and look at your face for 30 or 40 more years? Of course not. It, it, it's glorious what happens at death. Then we turn our attention to the souls of the wicked at death. The confession says the souls of the wicked are cast into hell where they will remain in torment and utter darkness reserved to the judgment of the great day. Three truths that we see here. First, the souls of the wicked are cast into hell at death. Immediately at death as their bodies begin to decay, the souls of the righteous are welcomed into the glorious paradise of God and behold the face of Christ. And in that moment, the wicked are already immediately in hell. Jesus told the story of the rich man and Lazarus, saying of the rich man after he had died in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Now this is before the final judgment. This is in the intermediate state that we're talking about. He's in Hades or hell already. He's already in torment and in anguish. And he describes his anguish as as that of being in this flame. I'm in anguish in this flame, in an instant. Hell is not something that's merely still to come for the departed wicked. It is a reality for them at the moment of death. They're cast into hell. Now our confession uses the term wicked, but we shouldn't imagine that this is only describing people who were in this life outwardly known as menaces to society or unusually diabolical people. The word wicked is a synonym for people who weren't Christians. People who had never put their faith in Jesus Christ. People who had never heard of Jesus Christ. People who had maybe heard and thought they were Christians, but they weren't. People who went to churches all their life, but had never put their faith in Christ. This refers to every person who's not a Christian. Friends family members, co-workers, kind neighbors, store clerks, etc. Every person you've ever known or seen who was not a Christian and who has died is right now in the torments of hell. And they have been in the anguish of that flame since the instant that their soul left their body. Some of you here, if you remain in your sin... When you breathe your last breath in this life, the next cognition that you have, the next thought, the next apprehension will be, I am in agony in this flame. And it will never stop. The souls of the wicked are cast into hell. Number two, the souls of the wicked remain in hell. 
in torment and utter darkness. There are no breaks or moments of relief in hell as we just read of of the rich man in the flame. He was asking for a drop of cold water. Not going to give it. Well, that that seems like like such a simple thing. you You won't give just one drop of water? None. No relief. Jude says in verses 6 and 7 of his epistle, The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Listen, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fires. The angels... Just like those of Sodom and Gomorrah, they are in this place of gloomy darkness and torment and they stay there. As Jude penned his epistle, those very men who pawed at Lot's door were in the flame of hell and now nearly 2,000 years later, they're still there. They've just been in agony and torment this entire time in the same state. Souls of the wicked remain in hell and torment and utter darkness. Some of we've talked about this before. If you visit the, the Linville Caverns and they turn out the lights and they, they explain to you that that being in pitch blackness within within like two weeks, a person goes utterly insane. Absolutely your your mind goes. Why? Because we're not made to be in utter darkness. That's, that's not how we're designed to function. You think, well, I turn out the lights in my room and, and well, I'm fine in, in darkness. No, you've, you've never seen utter darkness. This is an utter darkness, not merely of the eyes, but of the soul, a blackness, a, no, no good positive influence whatsoever. Only God coming after you in torment forever in darkness. And they remain there. Thirdly, the souls of the wicked are held in hell until the final judgment. Peter speaks of this in 1 Peter 3.18, these spirits in prison. I'll read the passage. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And this is The reason I'm reading it this way is because it's kind of a confusing passage sometimes. I'm going to try to read it in such a way that it might interpret itself. Being made alive in the flesh. Speaking of Christ, being made alive in in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience awaited in the days of Noah. Now what, what's, what's it saying? The spirits of the men who were living in the days of Noah. There were men alive in the days of Noah. The spirit of Christ filled the man Noah to preach. He was a preacher of righteousness. He preached to those men. As he's building the ark, maybe he took breaks on his lunch break, whatever. As he's building, he's preaching to them of the coming judgment. Peter writes and he says, those men, the flood came, they died. Their souls went into torment, into hell. What he refers to as imprisoned, chained, kept there, unable to be released. And as Peter writes, he says, they're still there. They're still where they were then. And they're waiting until the final judgment. 
These wicked are described in Revelation 14 as those who will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of His anger. And they will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. The souls of the wicked at death enter immediately into that state. The only alteration they can expect is that at the return of Christ, their bodies will be brought up out of the grave, reunited with their souls, and returned back to that torment in body and soul. This is why we refer to hell as conscious, physical, eternal torment. So there's the distinction between the body and the soul, and then between the souls of the righteous and the wicked. Now thirdly, I said I would tack on a third point, a distinction between truth and error. This last phrase in the paragraph gives us a brief distinction between truth and error, namely the truth of the Bible and the error of the Roman Catholic Church regarding the doctrine of purgatory. The confession reads, Besides these two places, heaven and hell, for the souls separated from their bodies, the Scripture acknowledgeth none. Besides the presence of God in heaven and the torments of hell, the Bible gives not a single hint that there might possibly, on a good day, be a third option called purgatory. Not a word. Not the idea, not a mention, not a hint. It's heaven or hell. In conclusion, the Bible is clear that all men die. Romans 5.12 says that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. And 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, In Adam all die. Everyone in this room in 100 years will be in one of two places, heaven or hell. Many, if not a broad majority of us in this room, in 50 years will be in one of two places, heaven or hell. And I think we would be foolish to assume that 50 years will pass before a single person in this room dies. That'd be foolish. So what does wisdom say? Wisdom says acknowledge the reality of your approaching death and prepare yourself. Prepare for death. I think especially of the younger ones that are growing up, you're you're beginning to comprehend and understand something of the world around you. You're beginning to realize and, and get a grasp on life. You're beginning to develop a sense of individuality, your your own personhood. You're beginning to distance yourself from parents. The problem is, what doesn't enter your mind is that you might die tonight. You don't think about that. Prepare for death. Now, you think, well, well, my goodness, what if I do live 80 years? Well, I prepare for death now, and then I live the rest of my 80 years Prepared or preparing for death? Yes. It's eternity. It's it's a short life compared to eternity. What we have been given in this life is to serve Christ and get ready for eternity. Don't pretend like death cannot come for you tonight. Don't think that way.
Prepare yourself. How do we prepare ourselves? By beholding the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and having looked at Him, keep looking at Him. Keep beholding Christ until your, your faith sight becomes soul sight and you see Him. Just look and don't stop looking. I listened, some of you might have seen a man this week named Achille Blaze died. So I went and listened to some of his sermons and he preaches a sermon uh, on, the, on the passage, Behold the Lamb of God. And he says multiple times, look and look until your eyeballs fall out. Keep looking and don't stop Look. That's how you prepare for death. Entrust yourself to Christ. John, the apostle, was able to see the intermediate state of the souls of dead saints. He saw them. And this is what he, how he described it. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. For a Christian, to close your eyes in death is to wake up reigning with Christ. May we all be diligent to be found in that number.